There's a fable in India about a king who loved to play chess. And everyone who had come through his kingdom, he would challenge them to a game of chess. He was a master, so he never lost. But he would offer them, like, whatever you ask, just ask me anything. And if you win, I'll give it to you. Well, a traveling sage came through, and he was also a chess master. King didn't know it. Challenged him to a game of chess and said, if you win, I will give you whatever you ask. Well, the sage had a very simple request. All I ask is that you give me one piece of rice on the first square of the chessboard. But every square, you double it. Well, the king thought, that's a very simple request. Well, they played the game and the sage won. So the king started to pay his debt and he soon found out there's no way he could pay that debt. Because by the time he got to the second row, the 16th board, or 16th square, it was an entire pound of rice on square 16. He got to the next line, and by the time he got to the 22nd square, it wasn't a pound of rice. It was 50 pounds of rice. By the end of the third row, he was up to 200 pounds per square and doubling every square, and he realized, there's no way I can pay this bill. See, at the end of the board, it would be over 9 billion tons of rice, enough to fill the entire country of India three feet deep. Now, mathematicians love to share this parable because the power of a single grain of rice doubled. It's extraordinary. And it got me thinking, well, God doesn't double the rice when you plant it. What are the numbers for rice when you put one grain of rice in God's hands? I happened to be in a rice field last month, and I took this picture of what one grain of rice does. It's a stalk that winds up producing 300 grains of rice for every grain, 300. Well, you get two crops a year, so that 300, if you plant it, by the end of the year, you have, get this, 931 pounds of rice in one year. You keep doing that by year three. You're not covering the country of India with rice three feet deep. You are covering every country on the planet to the depth of an NBA player. Now, why am I telling you the story? Because God is a giver. And he doesn't just kind of give. He multiplies his gifts at an extraordinary rate. We've been talking about giving for the last three weeks, and some of you, I know, you're thinking, my gift, like, what would it matter? Because we've got all these campuses and these beautiful buildings and a large staff. My meager gift won't mean anything. Well, you're right if you keep it in your hand. But you put one grain of rice in the hand of God, and he will astound you with what he can do with it. So I thought I would take you back to the Bible and tell you two stories. Two stories about little boys and then another two stories about widows. Two of the boys, or one of the boys in the Bible, one's in our church. One of the widows is in the Bible and one is in our church. Our first story, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. Follow along. It's, it's the most famous miracle Jesus ever did. You can probably guess what it is. But I want to set it up because 
Jesus and the boys had been preaching and teaching and they'd, they'd really hit a wall. They were tired and they needed some R&R. So Jesus turned to the 12 apostles and said, look guys, we just, we just need some downtime. So let's get in a boat and cross the lake. They literally went the opposite catty corner of the lake from southwest to northeast. The people in the crowd, they weren't ready for Jesus to leave. So they don't have a boat. They ran to the next village, probably about a half a mile away. Had a little dock and they said, hey, is Jesus, did Jesus dock here? No, have you seen Jesus? No, we, we saw Jesus at our village, but you haven't seen him here. So then you have two villages going to the third and fourth and fifth. They literally ran nine miles around the lake and beat Jesus to the other side. Now, if you're Jesus, how do you respond? Like, I'm needing some rest. Like, I think we can agree on this. We're all glad that I'm not Jesus. Because I would not have reacted this way. He steps out of the boat and sees a crowd of 5,000 men. Now, why men? Because they're counting heads of households. Average home in that day had, had family had five family members. This could have been a crowd upward of 25,000 people. And Jesus began to teach them. And they saw that they had needs and he healed them. Can you imagine a mob of 25,000 people with all the sick in it trying to press their way into Jesus? It would be as raucous as, I don't know, Black Friday at the mall. I mean, just everyone trying to get to him. And tenderly, kindly, gently, he heals all of them. By the end of the day, Jesus is still preaching. The apostles are getting hangry, and they need him to just stop. Besides, it was a, it was a remote place. There's no McDonald's. There's no place to stay. So I, don't, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure, but the apostles kind of must have had this conversation. Of, How do we get Jesus to stop? Well, if we show concern for the crowd, then he'll stop because the crowd needs a place to stay. It needs something to eat. So... They all went to him, but one of them had to actually confront Jesus. And can you imagine you being the one who tries to confront Jesus? To say, look, you got to wrap this up, bro. I mean, what do you say to Jesus to stop? And so I don't know if they did rock, paper, scissors, or if they did straws, but one of them says, this is verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because... We're in a remote place here. Jesus, it's about the people, man. It's about the crowd. So if you wouldn't mind, wrap it up. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Uh, that's a terrible idea. Like, how do you feed 25,000 people? You had enough at your house over Thanksgiving. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for the, all the crowd. Like, right. I mean, that was a joke. And Jesus going, uh, okay. In between verse 12 and 13, there's part of the story that John tells that Luke doesn't. <laughs> you gotta hear this. When Jesus looked up and saw the crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, this is the only time Jesus ever tested anyone, but he tested Philip. Now, Ashley told you last week about the only time God invites you to test him. You remember what it was? It's with the tithe. 
God says, go ahead, test me. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven. Test me, God says. Go ahead, test me. And now Jesus, only test he gives, is in the same area of finances. And he's testing Philip. Why Philip? Well, Philip had a Greek name. And the only other time we meet Philip, he's in the temple with Jesus. And a group of Greeks come up to him and say, hey, Philip, listen, I know we're not Jews. I know we don't belong like in the temple, but listen, we want access to Jesus too. Is there any way you could escort us to Jesus? There was something about Philip that showed he was open to outsiders. That's why he was the one that Jesus tested. To see how open he was to outsiders and how much he was willing to give so that outsiders could have access to him. Well, Philip, when the Greeks came, went to Andrew, because Andrew's kind of closer to the inner circle than Philip was. And Andrew, here's another interesting thing about Andrew. The only thing you read about Andrew, three times you read about him, the only thing he ever does is bring people to Jesus. And here he is again, bringing someone to Jesus. This is verse eight. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Uh, here, here's a boy with five small barley loaves. Like they're little. These are, these are muffins. This isn't a loaf of bread. He said, he's got five loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Now, I feel sorry for Andrew. I, I, I really do because he was so close to the inner circle. Like it was Peter, James, and John. And James and John were brothers, so had there been a four, it, fourth, it surely would have been Andrew, but no, he's just kind of on the outside. But even on the outside, all he ever wanted to do was bring people to Jesus. And so these two pair up, and they find a little boy with a lunch, and they bring it to Jesus, and what Jesus does with it is absolutely astounding. Luke chapter 9, verse 16 Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Now, in their culture, what Jesus is doing by lifting up the bread and lifting up the fish and praying over it, he is acting as the father of the house. He's praying over the meal. But this isn't just one family. This is 5,000 families. And the people got it. It says in John 6, 15, they wanted to make him king by force because if he is that good as a father to 5,000 families, why not the whole nation? When you give something to Jesus, here's a lesson, he will bless it. And he lifted up this elements, the, the, the bread and the fish, and he blessed it. And then it says, he gave them to the apostles. Now, I've always wondered how this miracle took place. <laughs> Did Jesus like just pray and <clears throat> piles of food? That'd be fun. That's not what happened. Thought, well, maybe it was like blackjack in Vegas where he'd just taken loaves of bread. <laughs> That's not what happened. I've never noticed this before. It says he gave them. He gave the five loaves and the two fish to the apostles. The miracle didn't happen when they held it in their hands. The miracle only happened when they gave it away. You want God to do something in your life? You better look at the palms of your hands because whatever you're holding on to, that's not where the action is. It's when you give it to Jesus and you give it away to the needs of people, then the miracle happens.
So many people are eager for God to do something extraordinary in their life. I'll tell you how, your best shot is to give away to those in need so that God can bless what you give. The miracle will never happen when you hold it in your hand. And it's not just that 5,000 were fed. Look at verse 17. It says, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Why 12? <laughs> because there's 12 apostles. And Jesus is trying to teach them a lesson. And maybe this is the lesson that you need to learn. Maybe you're being tested by God right now. Because if God is testing you, it's because he trusts you. He believes that you are able to give in such a way that would gain access to those outside of Christ who need Christ. Here, here's the lesson for the apostles. Guys, I'm not gonna let you, I'm not gonna let you go hungry. I'm gonna take care of you. In fact, let me just show you something. You get a doggy bag to take home. When you give it away, God often blesses you in return. Even the little boy who gave his lunch, what a day for him. I mean, can you imagine how he would brag about, hey mom, guess what happened today? You fed 25,000 people with a little, you little liar. No, no, Jesus did it, I promise. Can you imagine that little boy watching his own lunch feed a mountain of people? If you give what God calls you to give, you're not gonna go hungry. You're not gonna be destitute. You will be doubly blessed. Now, I'm not saying that if you give to God that your blessing will always be financial. It often is, but that's not the promise. The promise is you cannot outgive God and he will heap on you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Sometimes it is financial blessing, but, but that's not the goal. The goal is for you to trust God. And then he winks at you with an extra, like a doggy bag and says, see, trust me. How about trusting me with more and see what I can do with your meager gift? Listen, if you're not giving because you think, man, my gift isn't gonna make a difference. Big church, lots of, like, I can't make a difference. You're right, you can't. God can. Because when you show your fidelity to him through your faith and your finances, he can do extraordinary things, even with a single grain of rice. There's another little boy not back then, but here in our church in 2013. He was nine years old. His name is Robbie. And Robbie heard the sermon of our founding pastor, Don Wilson. We were in a campaign, a giving campaign to expand our campuses. And instead of just giving money, people brought all kinds of things that were sold on eBay and such, and that money was then go to reaching people for Jesus. Well, Robbie was nine. He didn't have a job, <laughs> those pesky child labor laws. The only thing of value he had was a Nintendo Wii. It was worth about 800 bucks, had a bunch of games with it. He loved that thing. But he decided that if he gave it to God, that God could take his meager gift and make it a miracle. And so Robbie packed up his Wii and put it in the back of the van and they drove to the church. He was pretty happy about that, but he did, he did miss the games. Three months later, he got a sack lunch. One of our staff members in the children's ministry had a, an Xbox 360, an upgrade from the Wii. And he thought, you know what? I need to get rid of this. I've used it enough. And so he didn't even know Robbie's story. 
But he went to Robbie's dad and said, hey, could your son use this? When they opened the box, it had all the games that Robbie had given away and then some. You don't think God is gonna take your meager gift and make much of it? You don't think that God can take what you give and make a significant difference from it. Then you don't know God because we see it even in a grain of rice. And we see it in a widow woman. This is fast forwarding to the last week of Jesus' life, Luke chapter 21. I wanna set the scene for you because it happened in Jerusalem. It was a very densely packed city. Normally, Jerusalem had about 50,000 people in it, residents, which was as densely packed as Doha is right now for the World Cup. But on Passover, it exploded to four times its normal size. There were people everywhere. And the most densely packed place was the Temple of God. And the Temple of God had a different courts, courts for Gentiles. They couldn't go any further. And the women could go further, but if they weren't men, they couldn't go any, into the men's quarter. And Jesus is standing right in the court of the women. It faces the temple. And, and the offering plates were right in the court of the women as you went into the court of the men. So women and men could give their offerings. Thirteen brass receptacles, they were kind of trumpet-shaped. And, and Jesus is there watching. Now, it's been a full day, a long day, a day of debates, Jesus knows he's going to die in three days. Disciples have no clue. They think he's going to be coronated. Oh, he will get a crown, but it will be of thorns. And so Jesus, after debating, and he crushed the opposition. I mean, he crushed the opposition in these debates. And at the end of the day, the, the apostles are like, they're chest bumping and they're high five and they're excited about this. And Jesus says, guys, guys, come here. They think this is it. He, he's going to get on the throne right now. And they gather around me and say, do you see that? And they look over and there's just one widow woman. She's at the offerings and she's putting in a designated offering, but it's just, it's two mites. Now, a mite, the technical term literally means a shaving. It was just a little shaving of metal. In fact, I, I have one right here. This is, this is an authentic 2,000-year-old widow's mite. It's like paper thin. It's nothing. And if Jesus watched her put it in, you, would, you wouldn't even hear it because of all the, the noise of the other offerings, like there were rich people with handfuls of coins and on brass it sounds loud, clang, and everyone went, wow, look at their gift. And then a widow walks up and she just says, this. you got to lean in and listen. That's it. And the apostles are going, you got excited over that? You know, you know what you can buy with two widow's mites? like a dinner roll. But Jesus, he doesn't measure your gift with a scale. He measures it with a thermometer. And her gift was red hot. Here's how Jesus put it. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, I don't think she like starved to death after that. Because there was benevolence every few days. But she would have been hungry until the next round of benevolence came in. And Jesus looked at her. He was so impressed with her. And the interesting thing about this widow woman for me is she had no idea that Jesus was watching. She was just doing her worship. 
She wasn't doing it for people to see. She was doing it for God alone to say to God, listen, I know I'm going to go hungry, but I believe that if I give this gift to you, you can make much out of a meager gift. And Jesus was blown away. Little did she know that Jesus would tell her story to the apostles and they would write it in a book. And for 2,000 years, there has been no story in the Bible to inspire more giving than this one widow's story. In fact, my guess is right now in heaven, one of the angels will go, hey lady, we're talking about you again. Really? Like it was two mites, but it was a mighty gift because it was given in faith. If you have not been giving because you think you don't make a difference, it's not about your difference. It's about the difference God can make with big faith. Well, that's a couple stories of, of kids and a story of a widow. I'm gonna tell you about a widow in our church. She's from our Midtown campus. Her name is Kelly, and she became a widow way too young. Uh, last September 22nd, her husband David died after an 18-month bout with cancer. And many of you have been through that with a loved one. You know all the decisions you have to make, medical decisions and healthcare decisions, financial decisions. And after he passed, there's the, the life insurance policy and then what do I do with the house? But Kelly was one of our like rock star staff members at the Midtown campus. She made a big difference. And the Midtown staff and church was really her support system. But after David died, it was also a reminder of all that she had lost. And so in order to care for her mental health after her husband's passing, uh, Kelly quit her job because she needed to focus on getting well. But that left her without a husband's income, left her without her own income. She could live off the life insurance policy some, but I mean, widows... We just have to wash their, wash their pennies. And she was very confused at that time, and I, I thank God for the help she got through our financial planning. We, we help people all the time with financial coaching. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but one of the things we do as a church is provide financial peace. It's a class that you can go through to help you budget and save and tithe. The class cost $100 but it doesn't cost you that. We believe so much in the health of stewardship, what it will do for you spiritually, that we have, we have fronted the cost for anyone on any campus that wants to take financial peace, you can take it, we'll foot the bill. We believe that much in what God can do when you give him your loyalty financially. We've seen it a thousand times over. Like once you give God lordship of your finances, when you begin to tithe and do what the Bible calls you to do, so many other spiritual things fall into place. Well, Kelly also leaned into uh, grief share, which we have also on every campus. So if you need that help, we're, we're here to provide that help for you. But one of the things that Kelly knew is that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you also need to be a generous giver. But she didn't have an income to tithe on, so what would she give? And then she thought, I was so impressed with her when she told me this. God's given me time. And she's far too young for Social Security, but she has time. 
And so she started learning different skills and she thought, you know what? We have been paying over $100 a month for a pool service. I can figure out how to do that because I have the time and then I will give that money to the work of the church. She understands as a widow that when you give to God, he can make much out of a meager gift. Our world is so different than that. A lot of people think if I just like, if I won the lottery, I would tithe for sure. I would tithe. Just, God, I mean, answer my prayer. Or, or they think if I get a raise, if I could double my salary, or if I can invent something and become you know, famous. But God doesn't need the world's money. He doesn't need the world's fame. He needs your faithfulness. In fact, you know what the world does with money? They will destroy it almost every time. This is a stunning fact, but all the wealthiest families in America, I think it's probably true around the world, but certainly in America, the wealthiest families, when the patriarch dies and passes on the inheritance, multi, multi-million dollars, 70% of those families lose their money in two generations. And 90% lose all the money in three generations. Classic example is the Vanderbilt family. Cornelius Vanderbilt in 1810 borrowed $100 from his mother. That is equivalent of $2,400 a day. He bought a boat and he started shuttling people back and forth from Staten Island. And then he bought two boats and then three and then four, then a fleet. And then he got into trains and shipping and merchandise. When he died in 1877, he was the wealthiest man in the world. He had more money in his bank account than was in the United States Treasury. That's like loaded. It came time to distribute his wealth. He had some daughters and a son. He gave each of the daughters half a million dollars, which was nothing compared to what he had. He gave all the rest to his son with these words. Son, any fool can make money. It takes a wise man to keep it. That was a heavy burden on his son, but he did. He didn't just keep it, he doubled it. And when William Vanderbilt died, he gave the estate to his two sons, William II and Cornelius. And they began to fritter it away at a stunning pace. Now they gave a lot of it away, like Vanderbilt University is, is their gift, and they gave to museums, but they also built these extravagant, crazy houses so that people would be impressed with them. The great, great, great granddaughter of Cornelius Vanderbilt said to her son, Anderson Cooper, son, there is no trust fund. You have to do college on your own. Now she did quite well by herself, but in 1973, there was this gathering of the Vanderbilts at Vanderbilt University. Vanity Fair took this picture of the Vanderbilt family, 120 members, not a single millionaire among them. Now, why, why am I telling you this? Because the world says to hoard money, to get money, to save money, and to spend money. You know what Jesus says about money? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now it's true, you cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. If you, like Andrew and Philip, 
care about people on the edges of faith, if you care that they have access to Jesus, even a meager gift in your hand can go a long way in the hand of God. He can take it and make a miracle out of it. Now, I, I hesitate to tell you what I'm about to tell you because I don't want you to take it the wrong way, but I feel like you maybe need to know. Of all the people that come to CCV, like we're not talking about guests. Like we have a lot of guests here. You're kind of like Thanksgiving leftovers. You're sticking around. We love having you here. We don't expect you to give anything, our gift to you. But for those of you who call CCB home, like you regularly attend, attend here because you believe in the mission of reaching this entire valley for Jesus Christ. If that's you, of those people, 56% of people who attend regularly, who call this their church home, never give a dime. 56%. And the reason I, I hesitate to share that is I don't want to guilt manipulate you. Go, okay, I'll give. Look, if you're giving out of guilt, go somewhere else. Because it's not going to do the church any good. It's certainly not going to do good in God's hands. Guilt giving is not what we're after. We're after faith. Do you believe that God is radically generous? Do you believe that God from one grain of rice can overwhelm the world? Do you believe that outsiders deserve a chance to hear about Jesus, if that's you? Then maybe it's time for you to take seriously your discipleship in your stewardship and give God a chance to astound you. Because if you do, what is at stake is another crowd. Not the Vanderbilt standing at the university their ancestors built, but a crowd standing in the throne room of God. Here's what's at stake. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And that's what's at stake. Holy Father, you have been so lavishly generous with us. Help us to see a miracle by giving you the meager gift in our hand and watching you make a miracle of it. We believe that in the name of Jesus. Amen.